Hey everyone and welcome to this special edition of Risky Business recorded at Ossert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. All of our Ossert podcasts are sponsored by Sophos, security made simple, Datacom TSS, discreet, niche, tailored, and bugcrowd.com, outsourced bug bounty programs. Big thanks to all of the sponsors for making it possible for us to work here all week and bring you these podcasts. And you can follow all of our Ossert coverage at risky.biz slash Ossert or via the RB2 RSS feed at risky.biz slash feeds. This is a recording of Mark Fabro's day two keynote speech from Ossert. Mark is a control system security expert and a terrific speaker. Uh, he's the president and chief security scientist for Lofty Perch, a control system security consultancy, and he's extremely well plugged into the SCADA security scene. He's done a bunch of strategy consulting to the US government, for example, uh, and basically Mark is Mr. SCADA. It is his thing. In this talk, Mark argues that we're focusing on the wrong stuff when it comes to SCADA security. He gives us an expert's view on the conversation we should be having if we actually want to fix things and improve our situation. Here's Mark Fabro. I hope you enjoy it. Awesome. Good morning. Great. Okay. Uh, hello. Good morning. Thanks for uh, for coming. As I said last year on the the day that uh, I was talking, I wanted to be, show my appreciation for showing up today, seeing as I saw many of you last night in conditions that would indicate you wouldn't be here this morning. So I'm thanking you for that. The other thing is, is that uh, I notice in between these two uh, big things here, if you are indicating or suggesting that the uh, matrix-like packet streams are indicating the worst of the worst coming, you'll notice in here it's actually dripping out of Canada on a regular basis. Rock and roll, thank you very much. Probably not intentional, but good to know. So, um, the, the discussion about control systems, supervisory control and data acquisition, industrial automation and the influence and, and things with cybersecurity is an incredibly awful dry topic first thing in the morning. And last year's session was very, very technical, which turned out to be very exciting, but many folks said, we, we love the idea of control systems, but really the deep tech so early, so fast in the morning, I, I'm not really not going to know what you're saying until this time next year. So um, just to pick up where we left off, of course, yes, right, self-aware, all of this. After all the years, I actually figured out that all your stage lighting are belonged to us, but I know who did it, and that's good news. Right, thank you, right there. So some of the things we want to talk about to frame the issue, and just while I'm up here, I should look where you buggers are. They're down here. You hopefully will behave this year. Some of the things to frame the issue. First of all, is that many of you, and, and this is not going to be a discussion about how to do things. This is going to be a discussion on getting your mindset out of the little box that it's probably in as it relates to control system cybersecurity, what the research is telling us, getting out of that small box and getting you to think a little bit broader about interdependencies, the actual impact that some of these things we're discovering mean on a broader basis as it relates to critical infrastructure, because that's the problem. Right now, we're stuck in a bit of a funk because we are thinking that this research we see about single device vulnerability somehow magically extrapolates to systemic issues, and that's not the case. 
When we look at the issues of confidentiality, integrity, and availability, turn those around to availability, integrity, confidentiality, and look at both cultural and physical parameters associated with securing control systems on the infrastructure level, so many conditions sometimes have to be met for an adversary to actually get into a position to do really bad things that will, in the long run, result in catastrophic damage. So my talk today is to get you thinking about different things. Make you aware that we're not expanding our thinking as fast as the bad guys. And as we go through this talk, we'll actually see that there are some very bad people doing some very bad things now. And we like to give ourselves credit saying, well, I thought of that. I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. But yet we haven't pushed the envelope enough. In no way are we the smartest people in the room. I mean, we're, we're smart guys. We, we are pretty clever, but we are not the smartest. And every single day we are challenged by people that appear to be smarter or thinking differently about the problem and making the issues systemic. And we have to expect the unthinkable because the things that we are seeing now, the attacks that we see, the incident response we do, the methods, the tools, techniques, procedures, the indicators of compromise that we see make us think, ooh, uh, that didn't, God, didn't think about that. But I know now. So this discussion is hopefully going to be a bit of a change agent. Some of the other ideas I had for this session, but only having 40 minutes right now, uh, I wanted to talk about technical frameworks for zero attribution for industrial control system incident reporting. This would empower asset owners to be able to get their information out there with, with no knowledge. So we would have that. And we'll talk about some of the successes in this. Actually being able to use information entropy to solve the denial of control versus denial of service problem and actually evaluate the mathematics necessary to figure out the point at which the operator becomes aware that they don't have control or view over their system. And that I can't sandwich into 40 minutes unless I just show you that math. The 10 most interesting uh, control systems currently connected directly to the internet or a modem. When did we forget about the modem? The modems still run critical infrastructure. and We're talking about things connected to the internet. Why? Because the skiddies and you can just find them. And we'll talk about these things. But please don't forget about the modem. Creating control system-specific malware with old-school kits. Why? Because a lot of the systems we're dealing with are so old, you can take circa 1995 virus gen kits and write stuff. I was going to talk about testing of asymmetric security and heap overflow logic exploits as tools, techniques, and procedures for sophisticated high-impact threats. Who would want to see that? Yeah, a lot of you actually want to see that, save for the fact that as you go forward and try to truncate in the interest of time, the acronyms we're going to have to develop for that particular talk become less than appropriate. And my favorite SCADA pictures. I'm all about messaging. Part of the issue right now is about messaging. Here's a picture that is actually not SCADA, but demonstrates bad messaging. This kind of <laughs> sums up where we are when we're on the outside looking in and the message coming out is kind of like this. But seriously. One of my favorite skater pictures. So I take you back to visiting with relatives and having a street party in, uh, in the U.S. And we're actually there with friends, taking pictures of friends. And the weather actually got really, really bad. The theme, part of this story we're going to talk about is people. We're going to talk about people and how when we say, oh, we've got control system-specific vulnerabilities for field equipment, are there bigger issues? Well, yeah, there's bigger issues. So here's the pictures. Friends and family on the street. It starts to rain. I give my daughter the camera, and I go, start taking pictures as we're driving away. And she goes, oh, great, look, balloons. I love balloons. I'm going to take the pictures of balloons. And I'm developing these later, looking at the actual pictures. And it's so neat because when you roll back from this picture, the entire picture gives us insight to stupidity. 
the utility in this particular city thought it appropriate to say, hey, if you're wondering where the pipe is for skated control, it's in here. I thought it was fantastic. My daughter's on the path to greatness. So actually, what's exciting these days? Control systems vulnerabilities is exciting. Underground SCADA control systems cybersecurity research is exciting. Finding control systems on the internet is exciting. HVAC is exciting. Finding that on the internet, medical device vulnerabilities, SCADA malware, and SCADA vendors being hacked. This is where we are. That's what's exciting these days. Let's go back five years. What was exciting five years ago? Ah, exactly. exactly where we are. On the note of what's actually exciting, let's worry, look at what the World Economic Forum is worried about. Uh, dots one, two, and three uh, talk about the unintended consequences of, of things like, oh man, new life science technologies, climate change technology, unintended consequences of nanotechnology or the failure of intellectual property regime. As a homework assignment, go get this report if you have any worries about what you need to know to stay up late at night. Critical system failure seems to be very high in the impact. Cyber attacks, of course, bigger circle. Proliferation of orbital debris. Well, <laughs> just as a side note, there's actually almost 20,000 pieces of crap or carp, depending on what you're looking at, uh, before inches in diameter in space. But anyway, finding control systems on the internet is bad. Why? Because the public perception is this, is that if we actually have somebody who has internet access and connectivity to this, it means that. That's where we are. We think that I have got a point of presence and a PLC on the network. I'm going to drop the train bridge on the seaway. Alarms, right? This is where we are. It's actually not. Sorry about this. I know it's a bit silly. Just a moment. Just a moment. <laughs> We have to pause, because when you look at vulnerabilities by quarter since the Q4 of 2000 pushing out to just at the end of last year, yeah, 12 years ago is when we actually started to see these issues. Are they new? No. They're actually not new. 12 years ago, we started to uncover control systems, industrial automation, and the vulnerabilities that actually impact control systems. When you look at the totals right now, we are pushing 750 known control system-specific vulnerabilities that are out there. Those are the ones that have been disclosed and are out there. You get down into ICS-3 in the National Vulnerability Database, the numbers change a little bit depending on what you're actually looking for. The right-hand side talks about the vulnerability types, and they're very, very interesting because at the end of the day, buffer overflows rule. Input validation with ActiveX code execution, uh, data corruption, these are the fundamental elements. HD talked about some of the more interesting vulnerabilities that lie inherent in these embedded systems, but these are the problems that are actually plaguing control systems. These are the ones that actually get you to the point of extrapolating field device equipment into systemic issues. When you look at the attack tools by quarter, look at the charts actually grow. Nothing actually happened until 2008, and you started to see Metasploit, which has about 77 specific modules either inherently in it or customized for control systems. Core Impact, the 25, and Immunity Canvas, you actually take the 128 Glegagara elements in there. That actually currently has five very specific O days, real O days in there for control systems, and you can see a monstrous uptick in the attack tools by quarter. But common vulnerabilities specific to control systems become very, very important because I can't stand here and actually tell you what true indicators of compromise are, but I can say, because the, smart, because the bad guys are actually kind of clever, they're looking at very, very specific problems that are common vulnerabilities. Access controls, identification and authentication controls. And again, we're not talking about traditional IT things. We're talking about traditional IT concepts put in environments 
that demand high availability, 24 by 7 by 365, so that contemporary IT countermeasures that we think we could solve by putting in here often break the model for the system actually working right. One of the things that I think most important, because we're talking about interdependency and the exploitation of trust among systems, is the lack of functional demilitarized zones. The 2012 incident landscape by sectors from ICS CERT, energy is 41, internet-facing devices, water is at 15. So right now, energy. Why energy? Because we're not stupid. We know energy is the place to be. The energy sector in terms of oil and gas, in particular electricity, is going to be the most important sector because everything else will fail after that. We learned that in North America from the 2003 blackout. The attack tools we're seeing right now that get into embedded systems, the exfiltration and extraction of pertinent need-to-know information for the adversary to do systemic-based exploitation of the trust in the system, which will ultimately move to the exploitation of optimization. We'll talk about trust and optimization in a second because control systems runs tuned for optimization and the exploitation of those elements make the landscape very, very different. We have GoodFed, RFCAT, Shodan, we're going to talk about that explicitly, Terminator, default password enumeration project and things like this. It becomes important for the adversary and for us as defenders to truly understand what has to happen for successful attacks. Remember, we get very excited about control system cybersecurity because it's sexy. You do IT or cyber-specific things, and it has real-world, physical-world ramifications, and that's exciting. I want to see things move. I want to see bridges drop. I want to see air conditioners turn on, stuff like this. It is all about command and control. What you do in industrial automation, because the way the systems are built, almost always manifest in graphical user interfaces. Human-machine interfaces become the eyes into the system for the operator. They are a very good target. Why are they a target? Because you have to be able to avoid, as an adversary, accurate information getting back to the operator. You can noodle with the systems, but when something happens in the real world, the sensors and the feedback loops that go to the operator, they actually see it. So the landscape for the adversary is actually very different. You need to understand what the attack trees and the kill chain look like so that you as the attacker don't let anybody know that you're doing it, which gets kind of hard when the systems that you're manipulating actually in real time always show the operator. So we talk about command and control, and people bring up the concepts of view and control, loss of view and loss of control. There's two things. The operator needs to be able to see it, and the operator needs to control it. Generally, and it depends on the criticality of the process, the loss of view is subcritical to control because there's safety instrumentation systems in the background that will continue to drive it, right? The elements of control and view, the curve on the right talks about level one control. And again, I'm taking you down the journey about getting away from thinking about field-level PLCs and getting down into the nuts and bolts of what we really need to be worried about to protect the critical infrastructure systems. It's not a simple matter of saying, oh, I've attacked the PLC, ergo, this system and the whole world and the critical infrastructure and national security and economic issues are going to happen. No, it's not. When you start to think about it, in terms of the goals of the adversary, in the context of the value proposition of the systems, you move from optimization through control into level one control, you actually have the asset. That's where the attacker wants to be. And at that level, being able to control the view of the system becomes very, very important. So I know there's lots of military folks. We can take the Boyd OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. This loop basically tells you from traditional military sense, and I will make sense of this in a second, traditional military sense of being able to take information from the field and the operational domain and the sensors, taking information orders and circling it back into decision support. That is actually no different than you're looking at industrial control systems where the intelligence that's in the field is going to be collected by your state analysis, external sources, and the sensors in the field, which actually get put back 
back into the human machine interface, run through the algorithms uh, in tandem with aggregated information that's coming through other things, transport, demand, and supply, peer data, all of this. This is the cycle that we need to fully understand. The reason is, is because the attacker knows operators want to run at target optimization levels. But the bottom square actually shows you the actual state where the operator wants to put it, but show the perceive, show the view up to the operator in an optimum state. This is actually non-trivial. It's non-trivial for the adversary that thinks that field PLCs is going to get you to the point to be able to do this. When you get into the system, understand the interdependencies, be able to do the very strategic attack and exfiltration of information that will give you the opportunity to exploit the role of the real operator running the system, then you get closer to the real problem. Simple example of this from the workload, and then we'll get into some more interesting things because I'm going to throw this at you and then we'll be able to take a step back and relax. You're worried about, as an operator, your actual work. The simple example is, is if you are dealing with alarms coming in from the field, your sensors, assuming the information from the sensor field is absolutely correct, the information that's actually coming back at one or minute shows something like a fuel mix, and you have this adjustable required rate. If you are trying to correct every 20 seconds, you actually have a workload of 1 over 60 times 33, which is going to be, or times 20, which is going to be 33%. If the operator actually doesn't see these alarms, the, the system doesn't say, oh, well, sorry, you missed it. I'm going to go back to a normal state. It doesn't actually do that. They build up in a queue. And then bad things can actually happen. When you begin to modify the ability for the operator to see the accurate state information, you get things like the 2003 blackout happening. Not to say that every system will get that, but the backup of alarms and the conditions that the operator couldn't see to provide corrective actions resulted in, helped contribute to elements of that blackout. So now let's actually talk about the kill chain. And the reason I want to talk about the kill chain is, is twofold. One is that uh, I actually thought it was really important, and I put it in the uh, synopsis of what I was going to talk about, so I'm following through on my promise for that. Um, so we have reconnaissance, weaponization, delivery, exploitation, installation. I'll actually let you read these because we're going to peel back the layers a bit. But we have got a couple of things that are interesting because we want to end up talking about people. Time and time again, when we look at the analysis of forensics investigation, when we look at the tools, techniques, and procedures for penetration into a system, the delivery mechanisms, the point at which the adversary, who is specifically looking for control systems, their point of contact is going to be people. It is going to be hardware, software, and it is going to be wetware. We have advantages as the attacker in all of this because hardware and software for control systems. Why? And if you put on your smooth, buttery voice here, and you say things like, what do we know about SCADA systems? SCADA, the legacy computing solution for tomorrow. Today. When are you ever going to be able to use those three words in one sentence? It is. It is legacy computing for tomorrow. Today. We have an advantage in trying to get into these systems because they are legacy systems that are being run today and they're going to be there tomorrow. Let's go around the kill chain without actually being too clear on what we're looking at from indicators of compromise, tools, techniques, and procedures. We have the exploitation of trust. This becomes really, really important from a defender perspective because the kill chain is actually split into two. You are exploiting the trust 
that the system is built on, and then when you have access into the system, you are actually exploiting the optimization. Time and time again, the attacker, the successes we have in doing the analysis, the research we actually see for vulnerabilities that can be extracted into systemic, large, really bad things, are simple exploitation of optimization. The failure of security to be introduced into the system, because if you do, the system's not going to run as fast and as best and as powerful and as good as it possibly could. The reconnaissance phase, there's a bunch of ways to actually do this. You have got email. You have got the position and rules of the entity. We have seen the target folders, as we talked about last year, with family trees, very, very specific targeting of individuals. IP address spacing, uh, IANA, being able to use IP index trees and things like that make it incredibly easy for these actual target folders to be built. And again, you have the human factors both in reconnaissance and in the target folder itself. The target folder being is a timing. When are you going to do the attack? Because make no mistake, I have vulnerabilities in certain control systems. Sometimes, based on things like seasons, it's not going to make much sense, right? There's certain parts of the world where you have access to something like a water facility, but in the middle of winter, when it's completely frozen, that's not a good time to strike because the control systems are probably not working, right? You have to think about these things that actually wind up in the target folder. The weaponization, things like reuse, the allowability, the actual functionality of the days, contingency hooks, embedded backdoors actually into the code, the delivery mechanism where you're actually exploiting time and time again, and we're going to talk about kill chains, we're going to talk about attack trees in a second. The interface for the adversary to get into the system is the people. We're going to come back to that again. So we've got the exploitation of the human factors, email, drive-bys, watering holes, the darn USB stick. We have to worry about the delivery mechanism coming through things like disgruntled employees, which I was going to ask, what is a gruntled employee? I've got to find out what gruntled is. Exploitation comes through the SQL injection, being able to look at the trust. We are now into the exploitation of trust. SQL injection for the front-facing, public-facing DMZ services that are specifically built to serve up information about corporate operations, control system operations that are connected to the corporate domain, which are pulling information from back-end databases, historians, and things like that. That trust relationship that's built in between the servers across, quote-unquote, security zones begins to get exploited. Because when you have optimized your system, that information flows really, really well. But when you optimize it, you also tend to go, well, I'm going you know, to shave off a little bit of what I need to do for security here, and I'll just watch more closely. The command and control function, development of, you've got direct to internet, you've got the development of the rogue sockets itself, uh, port 80, FTP, virtual private networks being stood up, modems, packet zips, all these kind of things. And of course, the execution on demand. Back here to delivery is really interesting. And we can't lose focus of this, because we have this, layer eight. Wetware. Why do we worry about wetware and control systems? The assessments have shown us. The reconnaissance mapping has shown us. The after-action reporting and forensics has shown us. Why do we worry about Why? Because stupidity is more dangerous than crocodiles. We have to be better at going from this to make people think like this. I thought that was awesome. Fantastic deterrent. Back into the tech for a sec, we look at the functional problems associated with availability, integrity, and confidentiality of the SCADA systems. This is just a snapshot. As you actually move to the attacker's goal, which actually starts at people being stupid, you go through network vulnerabilities, you go through network, uh, uh, local vulnerabilities, system vulnerabilities, network, all of these things, and we can talk about these later today, we can talk about them ad nauseum later on at your demand, I've only got a few minutes here. 
These are the issues that keep showing up. Major things, access to embedded device web servers. We talk about bulk multicast network subscription messaging. This all is availability. Why am I spending time with availability? This is an IT conference because in control systems, availability is everything. Whether or not you can see the data, I don't really care all the time. I need it to be right. I need it to be available. I've got to get my hands on it all the time, right? Loss of operational view, loss of operational control, or both at the same time as a function of compromises of availability and integrity is where the attacker wants to be. We are thinking about vulnerabilities associated with simple PLCs that you might be able to see to the internet. We need to move away from that. We need to look at these systemic problems, some of which are so ingrained in vendor technology, the flagship technology of the vendors, it's almost impossible to get them to change. So we have to start creating very, very effective defense in depth countermeasures because some of these things are not solvable in real means because they impact the optimization. You get into the point here, especially for confidentiality. People are like, well, let's look at plain text communications. Mark, my God, just encrypt the thing. Great answer. Totally cool. You take the crypto solution out to the asset owner right there, and okay, you can secure this chunk of your grid, your, your long-haul tier one. We'll just make it totally secure. Or your chunk of the grid. Let's just lock it down with crypto. Great. What's the technology do? Well, it's easy. It's point and click, all this kind of thing. And then you got key management. You're going to be hitting getting a 30% latency hit. Whoa, sorry, what? Oh, yeah, you're going to see your stuff about 30% later. Uh, no, I I'm, I'm actually need as near real-time, almost sub-millisecond polling here. What am I going to do? Oh, well, that's not going to happen. Oh, that's okay. Our countermeasures don't work. We're trying to fit the square peg into the round hole. Part of, the, part of the issue is cultural because historically we've tried to say, wait, it's a safety issue. Well, it's not a safety issue. The math for security doesn't work for safety. Safety is hazards, right? It is not threat-based. It can be predictable. We have safety standards. We build things to be certified for safety all over the world. We do that. The problem is with security, the problem we're trying to solve right now, we can't. The adversary, we don't know when they're going to attack. The three elements for adversary are capability, opportunity, and intent. When those three align, you will have an incident. Our job is to not necessarily get hung up on looking at PLCs available on the internet. Our job is to figure out from a system perspective, how do we push the work effort of the adversary up so high, at some point they say, you know what, this is a total waste of time. I can't do anything that's really important. We look at modeling that through attack trees. In the early phase, Matt Franz and, and uh, Eric Byers worked on simple things when the first the Modbus application protocol came along. They said, let's actually look at the attack trees necessary. This is very, very early. The attack trees necessary to figure out how to compromise master and slaves. And you actually say you gain access to the system, and you have to identify the Modbus device, and you actually have general attacks, attacks on the actual master, and attacks on the slave. And as you go down at the bottom right hand, you actually get to the adversary goal. Attack trees actually became really, really important. Why? Because if they're used by the subject matter experts and the asset owners, those folks know the worst things that can happen and the conditions that actually have to be met for trust to be exploited, optimization to be exploited, for an adversary to actually do the worst possible thing. If you understand the attack tree, you begin to understand the actual steps the attacker actually has to go through to get to accomplish their goal. And we're at the point to be able to do that. The benefits of attack trees are pretty straightforward. As I said here, exploiting the knowledge the asset owner actually has. You build it from the ground up. Your defense in depth strategy is working on taking the leaf nodes for what has to be accomplished by the adversary out of there so they can't get any higher. Is this useful? I think so. We've done it for a long time in the development. The intelligence community have used it. Here's one for the cooling system of a nuclear reactor. Boo, there it is, right? Have you figured out how to attack the cooling system of a nuclear reactor? Yeah, we've done it for a long time. 
being able to actually map out the attack tree for what the adversary has to do, incorporating security issues, physical issues, accessibility to network, human conditions, it all actually starts at the bottom right. We can actually do this for the bulk power system, and this is pretty interesting. When you look at the bulk power system, at least from North America, you have two issues. You want to do a 24-hour-plus grid outage. And look, we, get, we work very, very hard to figure out how to do this, and it is... I am still not convinced by any stretch of the imagination that you could do a cyber attack that's going to drop the entire North American bulk power system. It has survived a lot of things, and its legacy nature, the way it's split up across the interconnects, it becomes very, very, very difficult. But we look at this conceptually. You've got selecting targets and damaging the grid. For damaging the grid, you've got generation and you've got disruption transmission and distribution. Drill that out pretty much farther, you get into the, disruption, uh, the transmission and distribution, you can begin to look at things that become very, very important. From a cyber perspective, you've got the electronic attacks. I'm actually, electronic attacks are going to be for electromagnetic pulse, other things that we stick in there that we really don't worry about because we can't control aliens, earthquakes, the lights here, this kind of stuff. Subverting the SCADA HMI, then complexity happens when you get talking about the systemic possible issues and what needs to happen for an adversary to actually do, get to the position of exploiting the trust for optimization. Right there on the left, you actually see electronic attack. I can bend that out. That little arrow points to that stretched out green box. That stretched out green box right there is where it says electronic attack. Everything under there is the attack tree for looking at elements from a cyber perspective for the bulk power system. Almost every single one of the 143 unique scenarios and conditions that have to be met to do it, almost all of them are deep-sixed specifically because of things like NERC-SIP, compensating controls, best practices, and stuff like this. Right? So, PLC available on the internet? Sure. Can I make that turning off a bulk power system? I don't think so. I'm not going to say no because I am not the smartest guy in the room. So what does this tell us? The defense and depth models, they are actually starting to work. It also allows us things like better understanding when you look specifically at things like Aurora, the attack tree or the fault tree specifically for the Aurora, not Google, Aurora vulnerability that related to the bulk power system and, and the uh, very large in-phase rotating equipment. You look at cybersecurity protection and power systems, and if one of those elements fails, you can't do it. This is pertinent need-to-know information when it comes to building compensating controls. When we look past the bulk power system, we go into things like supply chain management. This is where it gets a little trippy because we're moving into looking at the systemic problems associated with individual PLC, individual control systems problems. I'm not talking about supply chain as it relates to going to the head end of the production line and then corrupting chipsets. I'm talking about mapping out the vulnerabilities associated with critical infrastructure systems that can import and impact the movement of critical goods and shipping, critical transportation, nodal hubs, things like this, right? Transportation becomes absolutely huge in all of this. So what should we be thinking about? We need to be thinking about a whole bunch of things, things that can suddenly be turned into choke points in global supply chain management, right? Things don't actually have to blow up. Things don't have to go boom. People don't actually have to die. But very specific sensitive points need to be called. Things like natural gas pipelines, non-energy, non-water pipelines. What is that? Why are people interested in non-energy, non-water pipelines? What is that? It's oxygen for people that need oxygen. It's for refining, and it's all for things like anhydrous ammonia if you're doing fertilizer or meth. Open source intelligence for transportation, it is out there. 
This is the obfuscated map for integrated electronic toll and traffic management system, memorial bridge system, someone's tunnel traffic surveillance control system, someone's skyway SCADA system, an underground commuter railway traction system, transit control systems. The stuff has actually There's happened so many before. Gas lines here. Gas lines? What gas lines? Christ. Oh, all of them. What is that? What is that? They're sending the gas. What gas? Oh, all of them. What does that possibly mean? Who cares about gas? Funny you should say. The power sector is worried about gas. Why? Because the statistics show us up to uh, natural gas right there is very highly consumed. Up to April 2012, we quote, if natural gas supplies were to become constrained or there were outages along the pipeline infrastructure due to a cyber attack, there could be implications for both industries. Show of hands by folks that actually would be worried about a specific campaign against natural gas. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, there you are. I can't really see. Okay, so strangely enough, it happened. December 2011 to 2012, cyber attacks leaving natural gas pipelines vulnerable to sabotage. We have seen specific OGP attacks looking at oil and gas. The really, really big gas company, that we, the really, really big country that we may or may not be worried about, gas company. Supervise, yeah. Exactly. All of them. Oh. All of them. <laughs> All of them. Somebody's big country's natural gas pipeline system and the SCADA system that runs as it is out there. We look at the U.S. bulk power system, dedicated campaigns at that. On September 19th, several asset owners got the pointy end of the spear phishing campaign from a dedicated IP address. And from there, we had seven additional very specific domains. And I want to talk you through the complexity of the problem right now because we had four registrants with four, 30 domains, 17 IP addresses, and linkage across 12 of them. There's the timeline for which sites were actually taken up. There's the timeline for which sites actually showed up on the bulk power system NERC watch list, which is good, and they are looking for that because their watch list is just so genius. The most interesting thing is that there's a three to eight month gap between the registration of the sites and the actual starting of the campaign. That's the severity we're looking at. We are not talking about PLCs out on the internet because we have Shodan right now. Is this a problem? Yes, it is, because the Shodan Intelligence Extraction Engine, or Shine right now, is doing the aggregate for control systems. We are out there finding these things. We are grabbing the information, a lot of which, which HD talked about, but it's specific to industrial automation that's actually out there. We have more than almost 650 qualified search terms which are specific to control systems. These are control systems. I'm not looking for necessarily web servers and stuff. I'm looking for very specific strings that are identified that show me it's a control system. What are the findings out there? Traditional, the top left-hand corner, RTUs, PLCs, the intelligent electronic devices and things like that. The non-traditional stuff we find? Oh. Crematoriums also. Ew, good God, what can't we find out there? It's just fantastic. Off-road mining trucks, data radios, and things like this. Those little devices that are actually doing all the heavy lifting, going from internet to serial, are they out there? Yeah, they are out there. Actually, there's almost 29,000 of those things that are actually active doing protocol conversion right, into the heavy systems on the back end. That is a little more severe than a PLC out on the internet. The growth of the availability of devices, and this is a different perspective on what HD was talking about, the growth of access to control systems that are actually on the internet. These are valid control systems. If you take them and actually put them on a map with Google Earth, what does the United States look like when you pop up all of these? It's pretty red. So we're looking at specific maps there. Back to the internet, back to the dark nights as we wrap this up. Are we starting to see control system specific traffic out there? Where we are in a position to look for it, we can see IP based 
traffic that is associated with control systems. Modbus runs on port 502, considerable uptick in the amount of information we're seeing. We don't know of any malware or any tour servers or anything that's actually running those ports. Port 2220 new for Ethernet over IP, the command and control channel for Ethernet over IP, traditionally with a certain vendor's type of technology. Plant information servers, monstrous upticks we're starting to see in this aware. Is this people scanning? Is this people looking for the devices? Possibly, because when you are looking for this, you're not just looking for devices. These are protocols. You are looking for the systems at the other end. And of course, intercontrol station communication protocol in North America, this is the protocol sitting on port 102 that is actually running traffic that helps manage the bulk power system between local entities and reliability coordinators. We overlay this with the dark nets, and it's great. Just a quick note on how fast it is. You look at the SciTech SCADA ODBC service buffer overflow. Absolutely fantastic because this port, port 2222, the vulnerability actually comes out. Going from a vulnerability notice to the publication of application-specific targeting, Metasploit libraries getting built and plugged in, in this case, for port 20,222, knowing that it's coming and actually watching the darknet, the library module actually shows up on Millworm, so we actually sat there and watched 20,222, and nothing's happening until the day the vulnerability came up. And you look at a massive increase in going from nothing to something because the vulnerability is out. Two days later, you actually see the exploit code, and bam, they're out there looking for it. The events happen, and we know. For those of you that say, I never really hear anything, I don't think people are reporting, absolutely not true. Repository for Industrial Security Incidents still, to this day, takes the fully anonymized, zero-attribution reporting for real-world control system-specific cyber incidents. So these events are actually happening. We're not talking about a researcher saying, oh, I found this problem with the PLC. We are talking about cyber-specific events that impact elements of the critical infrastructure, most of which result in interdependency issues. So just wrapping up now, it is more than just finding the vulnerabilities. It is these interdependencies that actually create the unthinkable. And I've kind of tuned this talk to be able to say, a day from now, two days from now, something might click. A light bulb might go on because my task here is to introduce you to the extent of the problem from the context of taking what we know in a microscopic level about individual vulnerabilities and mapping it to systems, to infrastructure elements, and then the interdependencies across those elements. We are not the smartest people in the room. Sometimes we're actually pretty silly about it. We give ourselves too much credit, but we need to understand when we're thinking about this, the problem is actually much broader. This is not fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is building abuse cases using facts. I'm asking you not to build your use cases for security. I'm asking you to do your vulnerability analysis and actually get out of the box and build the abuse cases. What's the worst thing that actually can happen, whether or not it actually involves your particular system. We know the attacks actually do happen, and using the attack trees and the proactive planning and the exercises work. That is where I'm going to finish, and I think it's an ask-me-anything time. Questions? I may be out of time for questions. Questions? No questions? Questions? Sir? Human factors, I've touched upon it. I'm always touching the human factors, yes. Yeah, let's, let's repeat that. This is obviously... Yeah. And it will give me more time to think of a clever answer. So, so in the world of um, aircraft staying in the air and, and health systems and keeping people alive, um, the topic of, of human factors has been um, almost... Well, not quite done to death, but they've, they've had a pretty good go at, at trying to fix things, and we're not even talking about it yet. 
Right. So, I mean, your, your context of human factors, you said human factors with things that keep us alive and things like that. You're talking the human, the factors of the systems that help humans live, or you're talking about wetware? I'm talking about wetware and people yeah. at the console making mistakes during their... Right. So, so the issue of, of people becomes very, very important because time and time again, it's actually the vector. The kill chain, when you tear it apart, includes the exploitation of the trust and the exploitation of the optimization. The point at which, that tipping point is actually at people. Time and time again, the analysis of the indicators of compromise showcase that it was an individual that was tricked or had done something inappropriately that allowed the adversary to get to a certain point. Now, that might not be email. It might not actually be someone letting someone into a facility. It may be inappropriate programming. It could be comp the lack of compensating controls for field equipment that's deployed because it needs to be set up to optimize performance and things like this. Um, we need to look at the human condition differently in the context of control systems because what has yet to be appreciated fully is the cultural impediments to trying to fix that problem in the control system domain. Fixing the wetware condition, the human condition, and the problems associated with people in control systems is entirely different than trying the problem to solve, solve the problem in IT. It's very different. It's very, very different. Most of it because we are excluded from the luxuries of being difficult with the people who can get us into trouble because they are the only people who can actually run the system. They're the ones who only know the system. There are unions involved. There's a variety of different factors that makes that problem more difficult. And a lot of it because it's the, the, the tipping point is that the human condition is where, in the control system space, it is the asset owners that have the relationships with the vendors, with the integrators, with those that want to optimize the system. There's a point at which all that trust has to turn into optimization, and that's people. In the IT world, it's a completely different problem. So it is beaten to death from the IT space. It needs to be aggressively revisited in industrial automation. Yep, we're done. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me.